Welcome to this edition of Gabrielle Dolan's Authentic Leadership Podcast. Join Gabrielle as she speaks to well-known leaders on authentic leadership values and storytelling. The aim of this podcast is to encourage you to embrace authenticity in both the professional and personal context. The stories and experience of her guests will be a wonderful catalyst for others to learn from. So in this episode on Authentic Leadership, I have the pleasure of interviewing the founding partner of Mekong Capital, Chris Freond. I know I've said that wrong, so I'm going to get you to pronounce it. And we are sitting in the head office at uh, Ho Chi Minh City. So Chris, maybe explain your name and welcome. Okay. Well, my name is pronounced Freund, and it's the German word for friend. Ah, yeah. so you Chris Friend. Yeah. <laughs> sort of like that's a good there's a good story behind that. So Chris, um, when we talk about authentic leadership, uh, what does it mean to you that term? It starts with authentic leadership. I, for me, starts with being authentic about my own inauthenticity. So it's mm. about being honest and transparent about what's really going on, not pretending to be one way that's, which is inconsistent with, with what's really happening. And it also means, I think, um, being a responsible leader. So authentic leadership is about choosing being responsible as a leader, um, not that I'm the victim of some external circumstances or something, but that I'm the source of what worked or what didn't work. And if I'm effective as a leader, I'm the source of that. If I'm not being effective as a leader, I'm, I'm responsible for that as well. Mm. Um, yeah. One of the things I've found working with you and your team over the last six months on storytelling is your, I was going to say the word ability, but it's, it's not ability, it's your courage to share as a as a leader stories of complete vulnerability so stories of about yourself where you've challenged um and i and i see the effect that has on the team i i remember one story you shared and and perhaps you could share it with us that you're actually you're actually the founder of this company and for all intensive purposes the managing partner or ceo but you demoted yourself to partner so there's three partners do you do you want to share why you did that Mm -hmm. uh, this dates back about around five, five or five and a half years ago. So at that time, I had always been the managing partner. So mm -hmm. the firm, I founded the firm in 2001, and I had been managing partner from that time until around five years ago. And uh, actually, part of it was we weren't achieving our goals, and uh, we kept setting these targets that we weren't quite achieving. And even though our performance is getting better and better over time. Um, but at a certain point, I thought that there should be some accountability because if one of our employees kept you know, setting goals and not achieving it, there would be consequences as well. They could be demoted or sometimes maybe lose their job. So you know, I, I saw, well, I'm the top person and no, no one was holding me accountable, even though we had a board of directors at that time. So I thought, in fairness, we should reduce my title and also reduce my compensation at the same time. And it was also around that time that we recruited another partner, Chad. And Chad had been the CEO of one of our investee companies called AA Corporation, and he had done a fantastic job. Uh, he grew the business by around 10 times while he was the CEO. So he had a huge impact. And it was something we had been working on for a few years as he would join us in a partner role. 
and I thought it would be better if he could join us as equals, me and him as equals, mm -hmm. rather than him reporting to me. And, and it worked out very well. So he, he like really stepped into the organization very smoothly and hit the ground running and added a lot of value. So now we have three partners, but I'm very happy with the situation where we're all kind of uh, equal in terms of our a level of seniority. Mm. I remember the first time you, you shared that story, I, I was like just blown away with, you know, I remember thinking that is authenticity to say, you know, I, I would hold other people accountable if they weren't meeting their KPIs, but no one was holding me accountable, so I'll hold myself accountable. I think there'd be very few, you know, managing directors or managing partners or CEO that would reduce their title um, and reduce their salary as well. So putting putting your, you know, your money where your, your words are. So, well done on that. Thank you. Um, who do you admire that someone who displays authentic leadership and... Well, recently I read a book called It's Your Ship, and it's one of the best leadership books I've ever read. And um, the, the author's name, Captain Mike Abrashoff, and it's the story of... He was a Navy captain in the U.S. Navy... He was in the Navy for around 22 years, uh, and he, at the end of his career, he took over what was, he became the captain of what was one of the worst ships in the Navy, and made it the highest rated ship in the Navy. It's a tremendous example of, of I think, very authentic leadership, mm -hmm. and there's so many elements to, to what he did that was successful, but at the core, he always did what he knew was right rather than what he was supposed to do. So he, in many cases, um, took actions that were inconsistent with Navy policy where he could be fired for it or, or held accountable in various ways, but he always took that risk when he saw there would be a way to do things better than, you know, than, than, than what official Navy policy dictated. Mm -hmm. And I think that there was a certain kind of integrity about doing what's right, um, not doing it because it's what you're supposed to be doing. And it worked tremendously well, and he really, um, really elevated the, the performance of, mm. of all the team members on the ship. And by every possible metric, that ship became, you know, the best in the Navy. It's a really good story, actually. Wow. Yeah. Is, has there been a time on that, so sharing that, that you admired him for that, has there been a time where, I guess, your values have been challenged and you probably haven't done, in hindsight, that it was the right thing and you regret it, or...? Um, no, I don't. I can't think of a case where I regret. I mean, I, I made lots of mistakes yeah. along the along the way. So constantly, in fact, made so many mistakes. But those have all been learning opportunities anyway. Mm. But I, I don't feel like there was a case where I regretted something for acting inconsistently with my values. Yeah. Um, but rather, we we made all kinds of investment mistakes or recruitment mistakes and things like that, which ultimately turned out to be learning opportunities. And you know, now in Mekong, we have a process that we call it a, doing a, a, a breakdown to breakthrough analysis. So anytime something kind of goes off track, we do this analysis, we look into you know, what worked, what didn't work, what was missing, and what's next, so that it's like a way to get into the root causes and, and learn from each mistake so that we don't make the same mistake again. And it's become very institutionalized, mm -hmm. you know, in, in our company. So now the pace of learning is very fast, and, and we, the, the, the whole organization tends to self-correct very quickly. Yeah. 
I actually I've seen that in action so so much working with you and even this afternoon when something came up and the the, nat- the natural reaction could be this was a mistake why did you do it but your reaction was you took responsibility to say well how did how was that allowed that someone could make that mistake so it's just I just it's it's one of the companies your company and you have a have a great role to play in this that I see um, values in action being displayed every day and every almost every transaction I work with you and your team it's not espouse values it's absolutely values in action so good on you again thank you (laughs) I feel like I'm just giving you praise all the time um just I guess a side question around CEO activism there's a bit of a seems to be a bit of a over the last few years CEOs taking more roles or I guess voicing their opinions on social issues do you have an opinion on on the role of a CEO and should they do that I've chosen not to personally I have some very strong views that are my own personal views Mm. um like I believe that uh, like drugs should be decriminalized around the world and, and you know, other things like that, that that are not mainstream views. But I've made a choice to not uh, connect that to my own capital because um, not everybody would share my view, both mm. employees or other stakeholders. So I don't want to force my views onto them, um, even though I personally um, have some very strong views. But I, I think that I can find other ways to to contribute towards those kinds of causes that I'm committed to and not not force it on the rest of Mekong Capital. Yeah, okay, great. What's, um, when you look at it, your overall job, what's one of the hardest parts of your job, do you think? <clears throat> That's a very good question. Um, <clears throat> well, I... You know, in our, our businesses, we're, we're a private equity investor, so we invest in other businesses, often a minority shareholder in other businesses, and we need to inspire them to take action to achieve something really big. Um, and I think the, the, the recurring challenge is how to inspire others to, to take new actions that they weren't otherwise going to do. Uh, and when it, it constantly re- involves stepping out of comfort zones. Uh, you know, normally we can't we can't force them to do things. Even if we're a majority shareholder, you know, force doesn't normally work. But in most cases, we're a minority shareholder, so being able to inspire uh, action is critically important. Mm. But that's also the biggest challenge. So there's a lot of uh, businesses where they have done something a traditional way. It might be a family business or a former state-owned company, and they're happy with the way that they're doing things, but you know we see that there's much more potential that they haven't tapped into. Um, so that's something we're always kind of struggling with and dealing with is how can we get more and more effective at inspiring them to take action. Yeah, yeah, that's a that's a big challenge I would imagine. Is there anything you've done in business that's been um, quite embarrassing? Yeah, I'd say the biggest one. There's a lot. We've made a lot of mistakes, and we've generally learned from them. But the one that I think was the most painful was about uh, about eight years ago. We had an excellent investment in a company called Masan Food, and it was the most well-managed company we had invested in at that time. It was super fast-growing. It was growing about eighty percent a year, uh, and um, yeah, and it, it seemed fantastic. And uh, then something happened where. Uh, 
someone approached us and offered to buy our shares at a pretty big premium to the share price at that time, uh, and we agreed to sell it. And um, uh, and so we sold it only after having held it for around 18 months, which was a very short holding period. And we doubled our money. We got a 2x return. And at first, we were very happy about that. But then immediately, within the next few days, our investors started contacting us and saying that they that it was a horrible decision, and that um, this was our, our, our crown jewel, and that it was our most well-managed company and super fast-growing, and we should have been holding it. And we started to get a bit worried, and they were very frustrated that we had done that. And then about six months later, uh, it hit the news that uh, KKR, the big private equity, global private equity firm, had invested in the same company at double the price at which we had sold just six months earlier. So had we held it even another six months, we would have had a 4x return, not a 2x return. Um, and that was really embarrassing and uh, because it was, we, we definitely made a, a poor decision at that time. And, but one of the lessons we got from it is we, we later looked back and realized that we really didn't have sufficient communication channels into that company. So we didn't have the full picture of what was going on. Uh, and we realized if, if we had spent more time with the CEO really having high-level, kind of big-picture conversations, that it's unlikely that we would have been blindsided in that mm. way. Uh, so that's, so we, so we, that was one of our lessons. And, yeah. yeah. Always lessons learned, though. If you, um, if you mm. could change one thing about you, what do you think it would be? And, and you can't say nothing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, Th- that's a hard question. The one is that just eating less food. I like to eat. I like to eat so much, and I'm always struggling with that. And then I exercise a lot too to try to offset all the mm. food that I've been eating. Uh, but in business, it's hard to say. Um, well, it doesn't have to be business. Yeah. I like the first yeah. one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I've transformed a lot, so yeah. I have changed a lot about me um, compared to you know how I used to manage like for. Some have gone from one extreme to the other. Like I used to try to manage through email, and that totally didn't work, and it often would blow up and get people very polarized. And now I never manage through email. Mm. I want to always meet people in person. So I've, I've made a lot of changes in, in uh, how I manage. And still working on the eating less. Yeah. Oh, you, you'll see a picture of Chris. He does, you don't look like you eat a lot at all. So <laughs> When you're not at work, so we we're going to change track now is when you're not at work what do, what do you love doing what are what are some of the things you love doing uh well the main thing is i love just spending time with my two little daughters so mm-hmm. my daughters are four and five years old so that's just fun for me to go hang out with them and we go swimming going jumping at the trampoline park riding horses yeah whatever but it's that's that's what's fun for me now yeah. Do you get home at a reasonable hour of most nights to see them? I do. Yeah, yeah. We, yeah, we have a very disciplined calendar system in Mekong, so we schedule everything, which also means that we, we can always, almost always go home exactly when we expect to. Hmm. Uh, so, yeah, every day I, I leave the office around um, 5.40, and I'm home around 6, and that's, that's, that's quite manageable for me. What's the one thing that, if people don't know you, that perhaps that you either love or hate that maybe not, not a lot of people would know about? Hmm. Well, I have a lot of it. I'm a very curious person by nature, so I have a lot of interests, but I often don't talk to other people about them because I, 
I'm concerned I might bore them because they may not be interested in these things. So like I'm very interested in quantum physics, anything that's about the origin of things, like the origin of language, origin of religion, the origin of civilization, and, and how those things all kind of arose together. Of course, you know, etymology, the origin of words, it's, it's you know, very interesting to me because it, it kind of allows you to trace everything back and to kind of see how everything's kind of connected and comes from a common source. Have you learned when you talk about that and go really deep, people just glaze over and go, what are you talking about? Yeah, many do. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I mean, occasionally I find a, a like-minded person who's, who's very interested in this, but it's uncommon. What's... um. One of the things I love asking people is about if they've got a favourite quote so, mm-hmm. and, and um, why it is your yeah. favourite quote. Do you, have, do you have one you sort of either one you use or one of your own? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have one. So a person who's inspired me a lot is named Warner Earhart. And he, he's a, in the 1970s, he kind of launched a, uh, a whole technology for personal transformation. And one of the key themes in their technology is, is um, that you have a, you can choose to be responsible for your life. Mm-hmm. So there's a quote that he has that that I think is very um, articulate about what that's all about. And his quote is, being responsible starts with the willingness to deal with the situation from the view of life, that you are the generator of what you do, what you have, and what you are. That is not the truth. It is a place to stand. No one can make you responsible, nor can you impose responsibility on another. It is a grace you give yourself, an empowering context that leaves you with a say in the matter of life. Wow. That's like really deep. Again, but I can see how you um, lead that way, the way you lead. Um, a few more questions. One, one is, you know I'm a big fan of reducing the amount of corporate jargon we use. Is there a corporate jargon phrase that you absolutely, if you could, would ban? Well, the funny thing is we have deliberately created a lot of jargon internally uh, in our company, and it's very intentional because we found that if we can have certain words with a shared meaning, then it, it, it actually in some ways can enhance our performance. So mm-hmm. a lot of our core values have a unique kind of name, and we have a lot of terms that only really make sense inside of Mekong Capital. And we found it totally does work for us, and it, it kind of speeds things up a lot so that, it, that there's a, it's very clear what we're talking about when we're talking to each other. But we noticed that when we're talking to outsiders that, that it, it can be very confusing and it can kind of shut things down. So we have to be very disciplined to not use our internal jargon when we're talking to outsiders. Um, because you do yeah. have some really, what I love about your values is that they're actually made up words. Yeah. Like integrity um, or victorance and, and uh, no one else would know what they mean mm-hmm. except for the people that work in Mekong Capital, mm-hmm. which I think it probably has this beautiful shared language you have. Um, the way I think you you will, you get away from jargon internally is that everyone actually knows what it means. Mm-hmm. But you, you you raise a valid point to say once you start using it externally, mm-hmm. it probably needs a bit more explanation. Yes. Um, do you do you love to cook? Are you a 
bit of a cook at home? Uh, no, my what? No, my I have excellent food at my house. Yeah. My wife is very passionate about cooking Vietnamese food, mm-hmm. uh, so uh, so we have excellent food. But no, I'm not much of a chef. I can cook oatmeal cookies. Oatmeal made. cookies yeah. is that yeah. your specialty yeah. dish? Do, yeah. do the kids um, ask for that? They they do. They we'd like to make it together. Ah, so it's yeah. a making together. Yeah. yeah. What's um. I always ask this too because I'm a bit of an 80s fan. What's your favourite 80s yeah. song or artist? I am also a big 80s fan, and so I've, I've, and I've that's a really hard question to answer. Uh, I think at the time, if I, if I suppose if I, I, mean, I grew up in Chicago in the 80s, and there was a certain kind of theme of 80s music they call like industrial music. So there was some, there was a band called Ministry that was very popular that I liked a lot. Uh, and then, um, of course, uh, New Order or U2 were um, uh, bands that I liked a lot. Um, uh, just recently, I was uh, listening to Dead or Alive, You Spin Me Around, and <laughs> it's, it's, it's a really great 80s song. <laughs> that's, that's one of my favorite songs, Dead and Alive, You Spin Me Right Round, Baby, Right Round. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think you can't beat, you can't beat the 80s. It's well, just, you yeah. know, can't beat it. Yeah, well, that was, there was a... There was so much creativity happening. I think it started in the 60s and went through the 70s and into the 80s. And the range of self-expression, at least musically, was so diverse. And there were so many like new artists coming on the scene and creating new sounds. You know, even within 80s music, there's so many different kind of styles and sounds. That mm. um, it was a very you know, prolific and kind of very um, uh, just a, a, a very creative. You know, musical phase, and it, it seems to me that 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 kind of after the '80s we lost some of that. And of course, new new music styles have come about, but it, but not not so much like what was happening in the '80s. Mm. So you even know the origins to the '80s music. So you, <laughs> you do like to find out the origins of everything. One final final question: If you could give yourself one piece of advice to mm. your 20-year-old self, yeah. what would it be? The main thing is. I would say go ahead and take more risks because I think at that time I was more cautious, even though I was willing to move out to Asia in the 20s and I was willing to kind of take that risk of living in a different country and trying to, uh, well, initially that and then six years later set up my own business. Uh, But I think there were a lot of other things I wasn't willing to try and when I look back, you know, it's like they say you never regret the things you did you regret the things you haven't done mm. so I think it's it's fine to go take risks and sometimes things aren't going to work out and it's okay and then you learn from it either it will work out or it doesn't and if it doesn't then you just learn something and, and got it, and also had a valuable experience how uh, old were you when you moved from America to Vietnam I, I was 22 okay yeah. so that's pretty young yeah so what I was the catalyst I, yeah. Well, I uh, did a junior year abroad when I was in my university to study Buddhism, and I came to Asia, and I lived as a Buddhist monk in Thailand, and also studied Buddhism in India. Then I backpacked around the region for six months, and the first place I came after having lived at a Thai monastery was Vietnam, and I came here for a month, and it was such a shock to me. This was 1992, and um. The shock was everybody was so friendly because what I all I knew about Vietnam was the war and I'd seen all these war movies like Platoon and Apocalypse Now, and I it occurred to me like it would be a like a war zone and everybody would be upset and it was nothing like that and people were super friendly and I made all these friends and they were so excited about everything and 
so that really stuck with me. And um, so then I, when I went back home to the U.S., I, I was just so impressed by what I had experienced in Vietnam, the, 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 you know, the energy and the forward-looking spirit. And so I wanted to find a way to come back to Vietnam for what I thought would just be three years. And uh, so I did, I, I kind of talked my way into a job in 1994, which is the year the trade embargo was lifted. And so I was able to get my first opportunity. And it was, I, I planned on being here three years and then moved back to the States. But, you know, one thing led to another and I never moved back to the States. Mm. And I'm still here 24 years later. And loving it. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Chris, thank you so much for allowing me to spend some time with you and uh, allowing me to spend a lot of time with your team. You are, I know, do not say this lightly, that you are one of the most authentic and vulnerable leaders I have come across and um, your team absolutely love and respect you. So keep making a difference. Thank you, Gabrielle. We hope you have enjoyed this podcast in the Authentic Leadership series. Visit the resource library on Gabrielle's website to access a collection of free material on business storytelling and thought leadership.